Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted to have on the program today my friend, the Vassar Professor Emeritus of English, Daniel Peck, who is here to talk with us about the exhibit that is currently on view at the Cole National Historic Site in Catskill up the river through November 3rd of this year, and after that it will then be traveling downriver to the Hudson River Museum in Yonkers, where it will be open from November 21st and then run through February 28th of 2020. The title of the exhibition is Thomas Cole's Refrain, The Paintings of Catskill Creek. There is a handsome monograph, also an exhibition catalog of the exhibition, with the same title available. And if you're on campus, it's actually currently available in the display window of the Three Arts Bookstore on College View Avenue. So, welcome, Dan. Thank you, Tom. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. So, your scholarship and your teaching have focused on American literary figures like Thoreau, uh, especially Mark Twain and James Fenimore Cooper, and this is an exhibit that you've done, and it seems something of a sort of natural move for you. So, I wonder if you could talk a bit about what interested you about Thomas Cole and his painting, being a literary person, and what it was like to make this sort of leap to the other side of the scholarly river into art mm-hmm. history from literature. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. It's a wonderful question, and one that I'd love to talk about. I always involved visual art in my teaching at Besser. I had always done that. And I was very lucky to be able to team teach several times with Besser's then Americanist art historian, Karen Lusick. Uh, She and I developed a course together. I can't remember the title of it now, but the college would let us do it about every five years. Uh And we started doing it in 1990 Uh and finished up just before we Uh both retired. Uh So I had that experience of teaching, and and I always did want to try to move myself over in my own scholarship Uh to really get good enough at this to do it on my own. Uh And I began that process, I guess it was probably 2007 or so, I published an article in a a journal called American Literary History. It's an Oxford University Press journal, and it was about Thoreau, Mm -hmm. one of my writers, and thinking about his journal, his his daily journal, in relation to the plein air paintings of Asher Durand. Uh I had seen a a link there Uh between the sort of gestural, intermittent creation of prose on the one side and these informal artworks on the other. So that, that was really my first try at it, and a lot of people really liked that piece uh-huh. and got a lot of positive yeah. feedback yeah. about it. Then the next thing that happened, the next step was I was getting interested in George O'Keefe, uh-huh. and I was actually a fellow in the first year of the then brand new George O'Keefe Research Institute in Santa Fe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so it was there that I, I began working on a piece about early O'Keefe and her early watercolors. Uh-huh. And it's so strange because on one of Pat's and my trips, my wife Pat, who also taught at Vassar, on one of our drives west along Route 40, I had somehow known about a series of paintings that O'Keefe had done of a house Uh in Little Canyon, Texas, where O'Keefe taught in the state normal school college that that was there. Uh And I also somehow knew that this house had never been identified and it was a series, <laughs> strange to say, two watercolor studies and then the completed watercolor. And if you had told me then that I would later be working on another series <laughs> related well, to Thomas Cole, I would yeah, never yeah, have believed yeah, it. Yeah. But I really got into this project. I did all kinds of research that I'd never in my life had done before. County courthouse records, old photographs, yeah, yeah. 
documentary things. I mean, my book about Thoreau is very philosophical. Yeah. It's not yeah. <laughs> like that at all. It's just it's the reverse. So for me, moving into working on that O'Keefe project and learning all these things and talking with the owner and having her show me old photos, uh-huh. I finally put it together and I was certain I was right. Yeah, and so it I, was that you found the house. What was interesting about it was partly compositionally. You know, yeah. Which one did O'Keefe do first? Uh-huh. And second, uh-huh. and how did yeah. she get to the completed work? Yeah. What were the sort of artistic moves that she was making to get there? So there was that aspect. And in, but in order to do that, I had to really back up and sort of walk all around Little Canyon, oh, Texas, yeah. uh, several times yeah. on several trips there. And looking back on it, I never would have said this at the time, but looking back, I think that experience prepared me for this, this one. Yeah. A friend of mine in, in Santa Fe who's an art historian, Sharon Udall, once said to me about a year ago, she said, Dan, you do series. I had never thought of it, yeah. but I guess... Well, that's what this book is. It's, yeah. it's about a series, Absolutely. actually. Uh, maybe not identified as a series in the past, but you make it clear that these paintings are related to one another, I mean, apart from the locale. You know, that's the heart of my book. Yeah. That's the heart of the argument. The chapter where I, I really advanced the thesis of the book is chapter two, uh-huh. and it's called A Different Kind of Series. Uh-huh. So, so Cole was enormously ambitious for his art, uh-huh. and he staked those ambitions partly on these large, dramatic uh, narrative series, yeah. such as The Course of Empire, where in five large canvases he tracks uh-huh. the emergence and development, and finally the destruction an abandonment of a huge Roman-like city. Cole was intensely interested in that kind of narrative, and he had a very narrative imagination as well. The other most famous of those series that he has called The Voyage of Life. In this one, in four large canvases, the first one is called Childhood, and it shows a baby in a little boat coming out of um, kind of a birth canal-like cave with an angel hovering right overhead and guiding the boat. And then the second painting is called Youth, and here there's the young man, he's standing up in the boat, he's looking off at the celestial city in the sky, yeah. the angel's a little farther away now, uh-huh. uh, still guiding and overseeing yeah. his passage. Yeah. The third one is called Manhood, and Manhood is quite a bad time yeah. <laughs> in this view. Yeah. Here's the fellow now, and he's just about to descend these rapids, yeah. standing upright somehow in prayer, uh-huh. and the angel's now much farther yeah. away. Uh-huh. <laughs> And then finally, the last one is called Old Age. Yeah. And here, the old man, yeah. the river has emptied into the sea, the placid surface of the water. Yeah. And there's this, this sort of orchestra of angels, gazillions oh. of them yeah. in the distant sky, welcoming uh, him uh-huh. to heaven. Uh-huh. Now, this is the kind of series that Cole wanted to be famous for, and in his time was. So these were works that were, looking back on them, very cinematic in a certain yeah. way. Yeah. They actually... They forced the viewer. The Course of Empire is at the New York Historical Society, and it's really fun. I used to have a lot of fun taking students there, you know, who would walk right up to it and identify all these tiny features and drive the guards crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this is the kind of thing that Cole was really invested in as a series. So my argument is that in these Catskill Creek paintings, I've identified ten. It's a little bit arbitrary, the Uh ones I'm calling Catskill Creek paintings, because Cole painted... A number of different views of the scene near and around yeah. Catskill, New York, and yeah. not far from Catskill Creek. But I'm saying that there's this one particular stretch of the river, a large meander uh-huh. just outside the village, where he took his vantage point for these 10, slightly different places yeah. along, but they're all looking westward out toward the high peaks of uh-huh. the Catskill Mountains. He painted this particular scene more than any other landscape he painted. He painted it from the beginning of his career to the end. 
first one is 1827, yeah. and 18 years later comes the last one yeah. in 1845. And it's obviously not narrative exactly, it's intermittent. Yeah. I call it a refrain. I mean, this yeah, is the, yeah. the title yeah, of the yeah. book, yeah. and that's the idea that I mean to convey. But I do think that it becomes a series because of the way Cole, at a certain point, is painting into a paradigm. Uh-huh. Yeah, and using sense. it for yeah. Yeah. purposes of you know belonging to his life yeah. and his response to the changes in his times. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's painting the same scene over and over again, in a way. And there is a, a narrative then that comes out of that, just almost in the fact that he's painting the same scene over and over again, and time is passing. I, the book is organized by the decades, and I'm arguing that within each of those decades there are certain dominant themes yeah. and ideas yeah. circulating through the works. Yeah, yeah, but he's not giving the scenes a history necessarily, although there's a history in mm-hmm. them. I mean, they're not all painted at certain specific times to show colonial times, to show, you know, his present time, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But they're about time to some extent. It's an excellent yeah. point. They, yeah. they are absolutely about time. I, I think they work with time in a, yeah. a very different way. They have narrative elements in them. Yeah. <laughs> that would be one way uh-huh. to say uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. There are these tiny human figures here and there, and those figures have usually been regarded as simply decorative, you know, as part of a, quote, harmonious landscape. That's not how I see them. I think these figures are doing things and implicit relationships among them, and so there are narratives, actually, playing out here, and a very different sense of time, I think, intermittent, occasional, refrain-like. There are artifacts from the past that are there, like the old Dutch farmhouse That's that right. evokes the, the colonial period to some mm-hmm. extent. There's a, a possible Indian in one, isn't there? That's uh, right. Yeah, so That's the yeah. painting that has come to the exhibition from the Yale University yeah, Art uh-huh, Gallery. Yeah. It's fascinating. There are three sets of human figures in it. A foreground rower. Uh-huh. The rower's a motif in these yeah, paintings. Yeah. I mean, even though a rower in 19th century American painting is a, a very much of a conventional yeah, yeah, motif, yeah, you know. You Aikens, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, sometimes signifying a rural life generally, yeah. sometimes giving scale yeah. to the landscape. Yeah, uh-huh. But my argument about Cole is that he's using this rower for much more yeah. specific and symbolic purposes. Yeah, I mean, what are his big allegories? You know, the boat is really important, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. Actually, in the exhibition, I asked that on one of the wall texts, I asked that we show that manhood painting yeah. from the Voyage of Life where the guy's about yeah. to yeah. go over the, the falls. Over yeah, the yeah, falls. Yeah. And then next to it is a oil study that we have yeah. which shows that rower pulling hard across Catskill Creek. Uh-huh. And anyway, the, the way things are figured in the painting is very interesting yeah. how much, in a way, how much interpenetration of the different series there are. Anyway, I didn't finish that thought. So a rower in the foreground, and then in the more distant, on the north shore of the river, is a man on a saddleless horse uh-huh. who's waving his cap at the rower, who is looking over his shoulder at him. Uh-huh. And then if you really look hard, and you almost have to have a magnifying glass, on a distant peninsula upriver there, there's this colonial scene. Uh-huh. There's this man fishing yeah. with the fishing rod yeah. straight up in the air and something very big splashing around in the water. Yeah. My guess is it's a sturgeon, one yeah, of yeah, the gigantic yeah, yeah. sturgeons that once... <laughs> once populated the Hudson River, right. so yeah. So and then yeah. right behind him is a Native American in a loincloth. Yeah. And so clearly Cole is meaning to identify those farthest figures, farthest from us, yeah. as belonging to a different era. Yeah. So that, that I think things are going on there yeah, that are yeah. 
have to do with time, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's also a sense in the big allegories, the meaning is sort of clear. But I get the sense from these that he's looking out at his own backyard, literally his backyard. I mean, he, his house, his home, is it's almost at the spot where this viewpoint is and is a little bit back from it, but you just have to walk downstream a bit and you're there. So he's looking at a scene he knows very well, and he's reading this allegorical world into it in a way, but mm -hmm. not so that it overwhelms the scene at all, or so the painting turns out to be an overt allegory, but it just has this kind of tinge about it of mm -hmm. allegory. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like the way romance, medieval romance, uses medieval allegory not to hit you over the head with mm -hmm. an explicit meaning, but just to evoke a sense of meaning in a way. In one of the works yeah. that I discuss in the book, the one that's at the Metropolitan Museum, the biggest of them, of the ten paintings by far, and the one I'm sure that was most important to Cole himself, it was it's the only work that he clearly intended for a major a spot, a place in a major exhibition. It's called View on the Catskill Early Autumn. And during my section about that painting, it's a fairly extensive part of chapter three, I think. <laughs> That's right. I discuss it exactly that way as an allegory, a voyage of life. Yeah. Uh -huh. It clearly has a counterpart in the allegorical hand. Each sure, of the little yeah. figures, yeah. there's the baby, just like there was coming out of the cave in the, in the allegory. So that's, that's the work on the cover that's of the, the, cover the catalog. Yeah, that, it's a beautiful painting, and you could get lost in it. Oh, uh, yeah. So there's the baby, there's the mother, possibly, the mother. reaching out to it, and then there are other figures, two young men with the two horses, that's uh, right. chasing two horses, evoking, for me, Plato's you know, oh. charioteer a little bit. Interesting. You know, evoking the whole idea of allegory. Mm -hmm. And there's more going on in it, too. There's a rower to the right. There's and, a rower uh, yeah, rowing up, upstream this time. Instead of crossing the river. That's yeah. right. Or instead of, as in the voyage of life, gliding downward to the sea, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. downriver, yes, yeah, and yeah. emptying yeah. out in the sea. Uh, yeah. Here, we're heading toward the mountains, which I think, for Cole, they appear in all these paintings, the yeah. distant high peaks of the Catskills. Yeah. And they're always represented, I think, for him as a spiritual realm. He always understood the Catskills that way. In this group of paintings, in fact, in this very one on the cover of the book, The Metropolitan, it comes through very clearly. One scholar has called Cole's sublime. In you have Edmund Burke and yeah, yeah. the notion of mountains and Tur Turner and that. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. But he calls in these paintings this sublime realm of the mountains of a kind of soft sublimity. And I think there is something to that. Yeah, yeah interesting. It's not the usual European alpine stuff. Uh, it's the, not the, the ferocious, uh, terrifying Alps, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so on. Yeah, the going up river is yeah. to make your way somehow. Yeah. Well, there is something about mountains, even the Catskills, that causes one to feel that way. When you're out west, you really feel it. You understand mm -hmm. why the Native Americans regard these peaks as sacred mm -hmm. places. I'm uh, thinking of El Capitan and New Mexico, which is, right. just looms over, you know, 100 mm -hmm. miles in any direction. It's the most important thing in that universe, in That's a way. True. So, and these have such a profile about them that you know you're in this place anywhere if you just look mm -hmm. up and look at the mountains. So, uh, Cole moved to Catskill, you know, and yeah. took up residence there at at um, Cedar Grove, this uh -huh. estate that was owned by his wife's family. And he didn't move there until about 10 years after he started painting this Catskill Creek scene. Yeah. So he paints the very first one in 1827, and then immediately the next year he paints it again, a very similar composition, except this time, whereas the first one is summer or spring, lushly green, and so on. The second one is autumnal. It's almost the same composition. And one theory I have about those first two works is Cole was experimenting there yeah. with a seasonal progression. Oh. And also, by, by the way, that second one was commissioned by a Hudson Valley patroon, 
Stephen Van Rensselaer III, whose death actually caused the anti-rent wars of the 1840s when his heirs tried to collect the rents of the tenant farmers. He was one of Cole's early and very important patrons when Cole's patrons were of the aristocratic class. After he came back from his first European tour, everything had changed, and suddenly his most important patrons were merchants, like Lumen Reed, who was a dry goods merchant. And so the basic pattern is that he starts painting it right at the beginning of his career when he's launched. Suddenly he's famous. He gets discovered in 1825. Really famous. Really famous. He doesn't have much competition (laughs) among his fellow countrymen, does he? Well, there's strange to say, there's John Trumbull, the revered, august president of the National Academy of of the Fine Arts, in New York, and he's the one really who discovers Cole. Oh, is he? Yeah. And there is this yeah. amazing, what to say, one of the great origin stories in all of American art and culture, and I might as well tell it. Yeah, oh, yeah. What happened is that, you know, Cole takes his trip, his legendary trip, up into the uh, Hudson River Valley. Yeah, uh-huh. He moves from Philadelphia, where he's unknown 24-year-old painter. He moves himself to New York City in the spring of 1825, and a businessman named George Bruin somehow or other gets wind of Cole's work, thinks he's gifted, and funds a trip upriver into the Hudson River Valley. Yeah. He makes his way upriver. We don't know how. It's probably a combination of steamboat and carriage yeah. and walking. Yeah. And there's this fascinating list of the sketches that Cole kept, and although they're undated, they are sequential. Yeah. So we know exactly where he was first, second, third, fourth. So he gets pretty far up, all the way to Albany almost. He gets, he gets above Albany up to Cohoes Falls, oh, right where yeah. the Erie Canal crossed oh, over from yeah. the Hudson yeah. and then this over this big escarpment yeah. with this whole series of locks and yeah. made its way into the Mohawk River and oh, heading yeah. west. Cole went that far north and he sketched at West Point, Storm King Mountain, and then on his way back to New York, he stopped in Little Catskill, New York, which is where he then discovered the Catskill Mountains, Catterskill Falls, uh-huh. and other scenes. The Catskill Mountain House, which had opened the year before, uh-huh. he painted that. <laughs> he painted the lakes that are now, as we know them, the State Park, North Lake and South Lake, yeah. where the Catskill Mountain House stood. Uh-huh. So then he goes back to New York City, and that fall, he creates these glorious paintings from those sketches. He puts some of them in a bookstore window in Manhattan. And one day, the revered John Trumbull walks by and sees them and goes in and buys one of them. It was a Catersco Falls scene, which is no longer extant, but we know it from a copy oh, that someone yeah, once yeah, made of it. Yeah. He then in turn tells his friend Asher Durand, who was at that time a, a famous engraver who designed U.S. currency yeah, and yeah. all kinds yeah. of other things. He hadn't yet become a, 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 a landscape yeah. painter, although he was the much older man. He yeah. followed Cole uh-huh. in this. And then they in turn tell William Dunlap what they saw there, and he's a notable historian and artist, and he was the great chronicler of the American arts in New York at that time, he goes and buys the third one. And these three works are then exhibited in the Academy's annual show in November, and suddenly Cole is famous. And, and almost du- overnight. Literally yeah. overnight, almost. Duran later said, quote, his fame spread like fire. And that seems to be exactly yeah. true. Yeah. So there is an art literature that people read so that people are interested in the arts, mm-hmm. obviously. So, I mean, you wouldn't become famous if they weren't. So there's an audience there to receive this famous artist that comes out of nowhere. Well, he comes out of England, but I don't know if he trained in England to be an artist or he trained here. Um, well, these are wonderful questions. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. so, so much to answer. Just a bit. No, yeah. not a bit. Yeah. They're, it's all interrelated. Yeah, it's Thank you. It's yeah. a great set of, set of questions. Cole's untrained, essentially. He grew up in um, Lancashire during the Industrial Revolution. His father 
was a failed textile manufacturer who finally in 1818 took his family to the United States to try to recover from the terrible situation that they had found themselves in. Cole was 17 years old when they sailed into the port of Philadelphia in 1818, along with his sisters and his parents, an aunt apparently. So Cole gets a little bit of training in Philadelphia, it seems, along the way over the next few years. But basically, he and his parents, separately and then together, are kind of wandering around rural Ohio and western Pennsylvania. He walks across the Allegheny Mountains over and back in two different years. He's an itinerant portrait painter. He designs wallpaper, things like that. So by the time he makes that now legendary journey from Philadelphia, he goes back to Philadelphia, seems to get a bit of training at the academy there. But by the time he makes that trip from Philadelphia to New York, he's already been in the United States for several years, even though he's only still 24 years old. And then out of nowhere, you know, he becomes this. And to the other part of your question time, which is so important, I mean, this is a culture, and this is where my literary (laughs) background with Cooper and all plays right in here, because... American culture, that is to say Northeast, Anglo, urban, artistic culture, was ready for Cole and Cooper. uh If they hadn't come along, they would have had to have been invented. This is a period when American writers and artists are vying for parity with European cultures. So Cooper, he has a very similar discovery moment. It comes out of nowhere, too in 1821 with his Revolutionary War novel, Uh The Spy. Two years later with Pioneers, the first of the Leatherstocking Tales, becomes really famous. And again, he's in his 30s already. He's not known as a writer. And suddenly there he is, and he's being called the American Walter Scott, you know. Yeah, understandable. And and William Cullen Bryant. So so there's a deep need for these artists, and the need is a national thing. It has to do with nationalism and building an identity, national identity, doesn't it? Um, Exactly. William Cullen Bryant, the poet, was known as the American Wordsworth. So no, there's apparently this great readiness. I do think it's true. I mean, I think Cole is actually truly a gifted painter. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of these works, you, just, you can't explain the electricity in these landscapes, yeah. the sheer beauty of them. Yeah. Well, he's very inventive, very that's inventive. for sure. There aren't many like him, and the invention is conscious. I mean, I get a sense from him. Well, you use the word cinematic. He's reaching for a different way to understand painting and uh, visual experience. There are things like panoramas at the time, those kinds mm-hmm. of things going on, but they seem too easy for him. I mean, I don't know if he ever actually designed a panorama or... Um, no, I don't think he did, but... but he was some, interested in them, right? Some people yeah. argue that he was deeply influenced yeah. by these panoramas, yeah. where people would go inside this yeah. uh, architected space and, and see these painted landscapes in a rotunda. And some people are pretty darn sure that he was really influenced by them and that they do explain his sense of the panorama in works like The Course of Empire and The Voyage of Life. So did he learn a lot on his trips to Europe? I mean, did those change his paintings when he would go to Europe and then come back and paint, especially in these Catskill paintings? I mean, do you see an influence Mm -hmm. of uh, Claude Lorraine or uh, the other painters Mm -hmm. on him? Exactly. This allows me to actually resume my story of Cole's career, which parallels these paintings. These paintings, you know, there's 10 of them over the, virtually the course of his mature career. 18 years, 1827, shortly after he's discovered, to three years before his, his early death, 1845. So he, he seems to have discovered this Catskill Creek scene a couple of years after he gets discovered himself. And... He completes the second one in 1829, and then immediately he goes to Europe for three and a half years on his grand tour. Uh He starts in England, 
spends a couple of years there. That doesn't seem to have been a real happy experience for him. Yeah. But then he gets to Italy eventually, and that becomes magical for uh-huh. him. And so great European artists of the past, like Claude Lorraine, mm-hmm. are deeply influential on him. And I think it's arguable that Cole never would have gone back to I mean, he so loved Italy, but he goes back to New York because there's a cholera epidemic threat. He's worried about his parents and his sisters. So in November of 1833, he sails back to New York, but he's learned a lot. And he has painted scenes of Catskill Creek while in Rome, right? Or while in Italy. That's actually on a second European tour. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. about a decade late. But no, it's fascinating that he did paint it from memory while in Rome. (laughs) You know, I had this wonderful cartographer, Um, Neil Curry, a Vassar cartographer and GIS analyst who created the beautiful maps, if I may say. They are beautiful (laughs) maps. I mean, they're a big part of the book, the Mm -hmm. uh, spatialization of what's going on here. Right. You know, in the valley. So one real valley of the book. If you're living in the Hudson Valley and you're interested in the Hudson River and the valley, the maps are just wonderful and uh, the way mm-hmm. you, know, you have these views into the landscape around us here, which is quite beautiful. You can live here for decades and not ever get out and actually see how beautiful <laughs> Well, I myself is. certainly yeah. learned a lot yeah. driving around Greene County and figuring it out over the course of well, that was one question I was going to ask. Can you still find these viewpoints on the creek? Can you walk to them and be in a park in Catskill and walk out? Or uh, You can, and can I think the Cole Historic Site, I think, is going to be leading some oh, are they? expeditions from the, from the house regarding there. this exhibition. Oh, okay. uh-huh. Yeah, so, oh, so you so could consult, sure consult their website and yeah, talk right. to them. No, I know that they are yeah. organizing that kind oh, of activity. So, yeah, the views, some of them yes, some of them no. You know, with Neil's help, I was actually able to locate the vantage point for all these works uh-huh. except one. And that's the one he painted in Rome. Oh. And Neil just threw up his hands. You can't and find it here, because yeah, it, it, everything is yeah. reconfigured yeah. in Cole's imagination. Yeah. Yeah. All the elements are there. The meander, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the old Dutch farmhouse, it's all there. Catterskill High Peak, Round Top Mountain. It's all there, but you can't quite make sense of it. Yeah. But anyway, yes, you can indeed find these views. Some of them are from a high point called Jefferson Heights, which is just outside Catskill. In Cole's time, when the scene he was painting was agricultural and pastoral, he had clear shot views of everything, whether he was up high or whether he was down at the riverside, from which he painted the second group of them after he came back from Europe. Now, and I've got some drone photography in the book Uh that shows these scenes as they are now. And from Jefferson Heights, which is where Cole took his four panoramic views, all the others are down fairly low, more of like a river level or just a little bit above vantage point. But up there on, on Jefferson Heights, this was, it was very hard for the drone photographer to get the view because of these trees up yeah. there, you know, on the plateau. Yeah, things overgrow, yeah. yeah. So, so, but he got it, and, yeah. and you can get yeah. the idea. Down at, by the riverside, uh, down there where Maple Avenue, which I think is 9W, Route 9W, uh-huh. right there, that's where Cole took his second series of views, and uh, they're at the riverside level, and there, the tree line on the meander, as he was looking, actually in this case, northwesterly, toward Blackhead Mountain and off toward Wyndham High Peak, there, you can't see a thing. Your view is almost completely blocked. So in this one, the fine photographer who got these shots with his drone camera, uh, there he had to go up. Way up over the tree tops right? to see, yeah. And it's a gorgeous shot, by yeah. the way. Yeah, it's it a is, beautiful yeah. photograph. Yeah, it is, yeah. But all of a sudden, it becomes clear that what Cole was looking at there is this uh, mountain off to the northwest, uh, Blackhead and Wyndham. And there is an interesting anecdote, if I may. The Yale painting, yeah. 
that we have in the show. It's, it's beautiful. It's the most ambitious one that he did after he came back from Europe. And Cole had painted it probably from two earlier versions of the same scene. Uh-huh which he painted five years earlier. We have both of those uh, earlier ones, and, and then we have this bigger one, this larger one from 1838. And this one has always had the title, as long as it's been in Yale's possession, which is 1980 or 81. It's called something like North Mountain and Catskill Creek. Now, turns out that North Mountain is nowhere to be seen in this painting. So the title is not Cole's. I think what happened is that it sort of, I mean, this is guessing a little bit and theorizing it maybe too much. I think in that era, people wanted to see it as North Mountain because North Mountain was sort of where the Catskill Mountain House was. And there was the whole cultural idea of Cooper and his hero looking over that cliff near North Mountain and all of it, all this American studies sort of scholarship around this idea. And so it sort of had to be North Mountain, except that it isn't. (laughs) I think people felt that Cole was just painting North Mountain badly. And the reason that that's important to me to have recognized that it's not North Mountain, it's a different mountain that he actually painted topographically very accurately, Uh does show, for one thing, that Cole has a stake to some degree in representing this landscape topographically yeah. in an accurate way, uh-huh. even though he does take all kinds of liberties. But then the basic formations, you know, Catterskill High Peak, Ground Top, South Mountain, other features, there is some sort of fidelity to what he's saying. Now, I know that's a very risky... <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, you know, it touches on the whole notion of realism, mm-hmm. in a sense. And then you mix that with allegory, and exactly. you get really interesting yeah. combinations. So you've got allegorical figures that aren't quite working in a full-fledged allegory, which mm-hmm. tends to have its downside. I mean, these major allegories, they kind of hit you over the head with meaning, but here you really have to work to get the meaning in a way, and it's never entirely clear. There's a little bit of enigma about it. Or you, you make a distinction between allegory and emblem. Mm-hmm. So they're emblematic, yes. So I, I, the, and the realism helps that. Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting, Tom. I talk about these embedded narratives, uh-huh. these small figures in, uh-huh. in the paintings. That figure sometimes, I think, is interrupted narratives. Uh-huh. Often these figures are in motion. They're between this and that. Yeah. Very clear. There's a hiatus. Yeah, yeah. It's like suddenly a freeze frame. Yeah. They're in motion, for sure. They're running. Yes, yeah, they're yeah, rowing. Yeah. But it's as if suddenly everything's been yeah. momentarily frozen. Yeah. So there's that. And then the distinction that you just mentioned... I'm talking especially here about the um, large metropolitan painting view on the Catskill early autumn, but I think it actually applies to the other works as well, and that is that I talk about the imagery, the human figures and animal figures and other elements like that in the allegorical paintings as broadly speaking symbolic. You know, in The Voyage of Life, there's this boat, you know, with the baby and the, and so on. And, you know, it's a very clear narrative, and you could call those figures and things emblems if you wanted to, but but the way I'm using this terminology is to say that whereas when I call the figures and elements in those openly allegorical works, when I call them symbolic, I'm talking about an overtly direct relationship between the element and its symbolic and its meaning. Yeah, meaning. It's, there's a transparency about, exactly. about the medium. Yeah. What I'm saying is that in these Catskill Creek paintings, figures are emblematic, meaning that they figure ambiguously, dense, riddling. There's an opacity there. They're not transparent. Exactly. Nor do I think Cole wants them to be. No, no, no. No, no, it makes sense. It makes sense with the realism. Mm -hmm. And also the little dramas. Like you say, there are elements of allegory there. The way in real life you have, you know, Mm -hmm. you might not have the whole meaning of whatever it is, this relationship you're having in this conversation with this person is. 
But there's meaning there, and it, it is reflected in these larger relationships that a real allegory mm-hmm. would, you know, would depict. My uh, epilogue is titled uh, The Refrain of yeah, Catskill Creek. Yeah, that was an interesting passage. Well, a nice way to sum up the notion of the refrain. I wonder if you could talk about that, because you do that really beautifully at the end of the no, book. No, thank that you so sense, much. You know, reflects back on the whole book in a nice way. So. Well, that's what I do say. That I say that Cole couldn't keep narrative out of this landscape, nor, no, nor yeah, did he want to. No. And it makes perfect sense that someone whose imagination was so deeply yeah, narrative, yeah, yeah. that of course... He wouldn't be able to keep yeah. that dimension yeah. <laughs> out yeah. of this. Yeah. His era made a distinction between yeah. this kind of landscape that yeah. you see in the Catskill Creek paintings and more, quote, ambitious narrative landscapes like this Course of Empire and the Voyage of Life. On the one hand, what were regarded as the simpler paintings were called views, and they were meant to be just, in a way, undemanding, pleasing landscape pictures, whereas works showing landscape that were clearly symbolic and meaningful and so on. Those were known as compositions. That's a distinction that Cole himself made and which his era made. So... Cole's having to, actually having to think about these things that way in terms of those categories. And actually, it's so interesting, you know, in this picture that's on the cover of the book, View in the Catskill Early Autumn, he did that on a commission for a New York merchant, Jonathan Sturgis, and there was a big commission. It's a big painting, a big commission, and Cole's famous now when he's doing this. So it's very ambitious in that way. He writes to Sturgis um, while the picture's still being, while he's still completing it, and he writes to Sturgis, he says, I don't want you to expect too much in this painting. He says, remember, it's just a view. <laughs> so I think you could argue that he's covering his tracks yeah, here yeah. and in a way disguising the emblematic aspects. Yeah. I mean, what I sum up really in the epilogue is that I think that there are definitely these important narrative elements in these paintings. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm arguing is that if you begin to add up the consistent motifs... And there's a whole network of them, and they're all related. If you begin to see them as emblems, a kind of reverberating presence of of these images with the backdrop of the same landscape repeated, then that's how it starts to feel like something meaningful. Yeah, 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 it does, (laughs) Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great stage set, and then you have figures on the stage Mm -hmm. obviously doing something in sort of tableau. I mean, they are frozen, but there is movement implied there. They're reaching, you know, they're riding on horses, they're pulling Mm -hmm. on oars. So there's an energy there, that's for sure. Tableau Um, is a very good word, I think. I don't use that word too much. I do in one context, but it's a great word. And I think it has to do partly with the miniature figures. I mean, Uh one of the ways I talk Uh about miniature in these paintings. Miniature could be thought of as a, you know, a thing. Like, here's a miniature, a figure, uh, whether it's in painting or some other form. I'm using the word as a verb. I mean, and as a, what, an adjective, too. (laughs) I talk... In a certain kind of noun, I and say these figures are very small, and he and he can paint very small, like Church can paint very small. He can paint a flower in a you know in a, in a wall sized painting that isn't any larger than a tiny little. It's little astonishing. Glass. I talk about it as miniaturization. Uh-huh. I think there's an active process yeah. involved, and you're so right. I mean, in this painting called "View on the Catskill Early Autumn," which down in the valley has this young man chasing, apparently chasing these two escaped horses. Yes. I mean, talk about symbolism. One is white, one is brown. Yeah, yeah. They're getting away from him. Yeah. <laughs> There's this big framing tree in the middle distance dividing him yeah. off from them. The horses, these yeah. clearly, I mean, these could be said to s- symbolize his own destinies or whatever they may be. Yeah. It's confusing, not confusing, it's, yeah. it's what 
Well, emblematic is yeah. the word that well, I the keep The miniature figures certainly give you a sense of the vastness of the landscape. Mm -hmm. When you see these small figures in them, you have a sense of how, just how much ground is being painted here. Absolutely. So, so you have a sense of vista. I can't resist telling you what you're talking about in terms of how small some of these details can be. That young man, he's pretty sure he's young. I can yeah. sort of tell that from his long, bushy sideburns and... And all, and he's running, yeah. and he's running after these two horses that seem to have gotten away from him. So his right arm is extended, and he's holding something. And I have seen commentary about this painting that says that it's a halter. And what's so interesting about that? I mean, it's a great guess. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful guess. Yeah, but of course, yeah. it's a halter yeah. because these horses are escaping. And what else could it be? Another way to say that would be to say that that is the narrative direction mm -hmm. in which that scene points. Yeah. So sure, that's the narrative. These horses are getting away. He's going to bring them in, and it's a halter, except it isn't. And this is how I discovered that. This is one of my wonderful museum guard stories. I got huge amounts of help from museum curators and other assistants, so needless to say, people were extremely generous to me wherever I went. But I also got some significant help from museum guards. They tend to look at paintings a long time. This is true. And my story on this is this, that I had been down to the Met to look at that painting over and over over the years. And, you know, I'd looked in that part of it many times and studied it. And on this occasion, which was getting toward the end of my writing this book, yeah. it was not a busy day at the Met, fortunately. And I was standing there and I suddenly, looking at that image and that arm, that outstretched arm, I started seeing something I had never seen before. I suddenly saw a thickened arm and on top of it, a bird, falconry. So I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And so I had my magnifying glass, of course, and my camera, and I was really struggling with this. Could I possibly really be seeing that? No one's ever yeah. seen that. The nice guard came around the corner, and I said to her, I want you to help me with something, and I'm not going to tell you what I see right here, but I want you to tell me what you see. And she was very faithful to this task I had assigned uh -huh. to her. She looked and looked with much younger eyes than yeah. mine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> She said conclusively, it's a bird. And then, of course, with high-res photography, where you can actually see paintings, details like this better than you can standing in front of the artworks often. Yes, yeah. Sure enough, it's I have an dog, image in yeah, the book, yeah. and I've blown it up even bigger, and there's no question about it. Yeah. So then the question becomes, and people have asked me this, I mean, everyone believes me about this, yeah. <laughs> that it really is... Yeah. Falcon, falconry so going doing with a falcon chasing horses at the same time. People have asked me, was there falconry in the Hudson Valley in 1836-37? And I have not been able to find out the answer to that. I suspect if there was, it was rare. I think more likely this is an image. It's an import from Europe, from Cole's European travels. Yeah. He would have certainly perhaps seen and certainly known about falconry from Italy and yeah. from England. Yeah, it's a too. motif in European paintings. Absolutely. Yeah, so he would have seen an artworks and he yeah, might have yeah. even seen the real thing. And yeah. So I think to the degree that you could track it to something he saw and experienced, that's probably where it most likely comes from. Another way of looking at it is that all the figures in this painting, the human figures, are clearly, this is not a wilderness painting. Sometimes this uh, painting has been regarded as, Cole did paint yeah. a couple of wilderness scenes yeah, with log cabins, it's agricultural yeah. and pastoral, yeah. and all the figures in the painting are well-dressed rural yes, gentlemen. Yes, no question yes, about yes. it. Even the baby has this beautiful bonnet. These are people of means. So it characterizes then the figure as gentry in a sense. That he has that could, it could be looked upon yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah. And then I have one other... Yeah.
explanation, which takes us back to earlier in our discussion when I was talking about that Yale painting, where I believe looking upriver is to be looking to a different time zone. What I'm arguing in the book is that the hunter coming up on the right in the foreground, who doesn't show actually in the section of the work that's on the cover of the book, he's one of the most prominent figures. He's advancing up from the dark valley below, gun over his shoulder coming home not from subsistence hunting because no way are these people living that life. Sport hunting. And so down in the valley, you have another sport hunter. Oh, I see. I mean, I'm just proposing this. I I don't have a lot of stake. Uh, But I'm uh, saying this is how Cole thought, I think, the relationship of these emblematic figures. And, And so... Looking at it that way, you could understand the young man in the valley with his big bushy sideburns as being the younger version of the hunter of the advancing hunter coming up. Yeah, so up you have two stages of life, a doubling, which, which makes sense in, in an allegorical. Exactly, uh, sense, for I sure, think you know, Cole's yeah. imagination really worked that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was very religious, wasn't he? So he grew up in the, the Puritan dissenting tradition of England. Ellen Wallach wrote a brilliant PhD dissertation about the influence of the English dissenting religious tradition. Uh-huh on Cole's imagination, and no doubt about it. Part of what interests me about these paintings is, as I say in the epilogue, there's no way that Cole could keep that kind of imaginative thinking out of these apparently innocent rural landscapes, which his era would have regarded as mere views. Given Cole, (laughs) it's never going to be a mere view. Well, he fits right in with Hawthorne, Melville, Cooper, even Thoreau, and that it's all about meaning and composition in a sense, isn't it? I'm so glad you said that. This is a little like um, this friend telling me, oh, Dan, you write about series, and my not realizing it until she told me, but this is a little like that. I have realized only belatedly that I do actually find a great affinity between the way Thoreau thinks Uh and imagines things and Cole. Both uh, of them are Puritan. Thoreau is a post-Puritan for sure, but it's there. Right. I mean, it's that New well, England... It is kind of a moral sensibility for sure. Also symbolic. Yes. Everything yeah, yeah. for the Puritan, even the post-Puritan, yeah. everything means something. Uh, one, one of my favorite texts is, is Week on the Concord mm-hmm. and Mary MacPherson, which is a lot like this, actually. It's about a river, mm-hmm. right. uh, moving down the river. <laughs> Wish I thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also highly realistic. You don't know where the meaning is when mm-hmm. you read it through the first time. You know there's some significance here and you know he has those aphorisms and observations but the whole thing has a structure there that, that uh, it's, it's just another river but it's Thoreau's River the book of Thoreau's that I do bring up in the book here and there is Walden which isn't about a river it's about a pond and again clearly the landscape elements are broadly symbolic yes. Thoreau thought that way and even though like Emerson he's reacting against earlier forms of New England Puritanism, that habit of mind, that way of finding in the world meaningful things wherever you look. Hawthorne's another good example. Melville, right? Yeah, exactly. The the Great Whale. Everything (laughs) is loaded with meaning. And I do think, I mean, even though Cole is a generation older than Cole, Cole's born in 1801 and Thoreau's born in 1817. So they didn't know one another. They They could have, but they didn't. Even though they're separated by about one generation. Yeah of American life, and they're separated by region, too. I mean, Cole's a transplant from the old world, but insofar as he identifies as an American, it's with uh, New York, New York City and the Hudson Valley, whereas Thoreau is an ingrained New Englander, (laughs) tried and true. So it's regionally different as well, and yet they do have this interesting common inheritance of the sort of post-Puritan view of the world where 
everything yeah. means something. I don't go into that much, yeah. but I think it's true. You begin the book with Thoreau, actually, in his comment on the railroad. And we haven't talked about industrialization in these paintings mm-hmm. and environmentalism, which has got to be maybe one of the reasons that you got interested in mm-hmm. the Hudson River School and landscape painting. I mean, it's the perfect time for people to develop an interest in mm-hmm. American landscape painting with the environmental movement being so important. The big fear of this age, it seems to me, is climate change. Mm -hmm. The way atomic war was the bugaboo of our generation. Mm -hmm. It's the big story. It's it's the big story. No, I, I do begin the book that way, and thank you for reminding me of that. I begin the book with a fairly extended journal entry of Coles, which he wrote on August 1st, 1836. This is the same year that he's actually moved to Catskill, taking up permanent residence there. And that is, ironically, also the year that the Canajahari and Catskill Railroad was constructed, and Cole hated it. The line ran right through his beloved landscape, the one in all these paintings. And this journal entry is vividly angry and sad all at once. It's mournful, and he refers to the railroad builders as the dollar-hearted barbarians. He is truly, truly angry, and he feels that they basically have destroyed his landscape. So I open with that, and I compare that with Thoreau's remark in Walden all those years later, in 1854, well, not that much later, you know, (laughs) about the Fitchburg Railroad that borders Walden Pond, and Thoreau talks about it exactly the same way, with this sort of anger and sadness. how it fouls the air and muddies the pond. And it's the same sentiment. So that is how my book opens. And then, later on in the final, fairly long chapter, which takes up the four paintings of this scene that Cole did in his last decade of his life, the 1840s, there I take up the painting he titled River in the Catskills. And here, again, Alan Wallach, I mentioned him earlier as having written this dissertation about Cole's English religious background. But Alan also wrote this groundbreaking essay about that painting, which some people have argued is the first significant oil painting in the history of art to depict a railroad train. Now, that's arguable, but still, it's one of the first. Yeah, it's before rain, steam, and speed, then. Turner's painting. Sure enough, you look down in the middle of the distance where where the river is, where the big meander, which is the classical feature of this landscape and the middle ground for coal with those beautiful mountains and always hanging in the background. And sure enough, right here, there's a railroad bridge. It happened to have been made of wood. And there's this tiny little train crossing it. The bridge masks everything but the smokestack from the wood-burning locomotive. The cars are trailing off behind, and you see them. And that painting has always been regarded as just a sort of sweet scene of showing how much at home the little railroad train is in this pastoral landscape. There was a whole body of American studies scholarship that argued that paintings like this in that period, ranging at least up to the Civil War and even beyond, that showed pictures of railroad trains was actually an attempt to reconcile industrialization with the agrarian idea. You know, on the one hand, there's the Jeffersonian dream of a, a land of yeoman farmers and, and so on, and on the other, there's emerging industrialization, and these values had to be reconciled. So in a number of paintings, I mean, you can really see that in some works, uh, like George Innes' Lackawanna Valley, where there's the roundhouse.
Shadows. That's a really good example. This painting was seen exactly that way by scholars until <laughs> Alan Wallach took another look. And what he saw was that in the foreground, right up where there's this Axeman standing, right in your face, as it yeah. were, there's this big stump. It turns out there are actually two of them, and that's what I recognize. Yeah. That view that often that when that painting is shown, they only focus on the Axeman with a sauntered stance and leaning on his axe and looking off with satisfaction of, of all that he's cut down. But there's another one right next to it, and it's, the doubling is forceful. Yeah. And so what Alan argued, and what I argue too, and I, in some ways what I do there is, is an elaboration of what he did. And the argument is that no, what Cole did, the actual damage to the landscape would have been way down in the valley where the train actually ran through. That's where all these groves were cut down and that Cole is so mournful about. In a speech he gave to his neighbors in Catskill in 1841, he spoke in this very mournful way about these elements. He said the Indian burial ground, the old mill, this, that, all these objects and, and the groves, the two groves that were just cut down, massacred sort of is, is the view of it. He talks about that in that way. The destruction wasn't up there on Jefferson Heights where he places these stumps in this painting. So what I say in the book, what's going on there is Cole has brought that destruction way down from the valley where it actually would have occurred where you can't see any of it in the painting. And he's brought it right in your face in the foreground. So I fully subscribe to that idea about this work. And I even argue that one reason that Cole gave this local scene in this painting such a generic title. It's called River in the Catskills. Uh That's unlike Cole, because usually he will give a fairly localized title to some of these paintings. Usually not a regional title. So my argument, and this is precisely to your point about environmental thinking, is I think that Cole's saying with his title, and it is his own title in this case, that here's a river in the Catskills that could be any river. This is what could happen to any river in the the Catskills or any environment anywhere with this new force of industrialism in the landscape. On the other hand, I also argue in the same moment that what charges that painting with so much ironic anger, really, is the fact that this is a beloved scene. It is intensely local for him. This was his backyard, where they ran a railroad train. So yes, it's a great question you're asking, and I do think Cole is, I guess we can't call him a modern environmentalist exactly, but, you know, I don't know what it would be. Maybe. Well, reaction against the kind of industrialization that he would have seen when he was a child in England, right? Um, exactly. In, in the mill towns. And you made a point in your talk the other day that he makes a point of not painting the Erie Canal, <laughs> even though it's the wonder of the world, and he's right on top of it in his first excursion into the Catskills to paint. When that's he that that, that, that is true. No, I'm so glad you brought that up, because that's a central part of Cole's identity, I think, is that he grew up in England during the peak of the Industrial Revolution. He even worked in a factory for a while designing calico prints. He saw the thing firsthand, and the town where he spent the early years of his childhood, Bolton Lemoors, was a textile, and and it would have been full of smog, industrial smog, and he would have seen what could happen to a landscape firsthand. And, you know, the argument that I do make, and here I am echoing that big Metropolitan show about Cole last year, which really emphasized his English roots and his European connections and influences on him from Europe. And that is that working from that position, I say that Cole may have come to the United States already with a predisposition to understand this landscape as one under threat, under potential threat, because he would have known firsthand what industrialization could lead to. 
Cole has sometimes been regarded as a sort of genius whose genius emerged out of this chemical interaction with the beauty of the American landscape. I mean, I think there's something to that. But I also think that he came to the American landscape with certain clear predispositions to be worried about it and what could happen and did begin to happen before his very eyes. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about the Coal Historic Site itself, the Coal House? It has been completely revamped lately. The studio has been rebuilt into an exhibition space, which I expect is where your exhibition is actually hanging. That's right, yeah. No, thank you for uh, asking. It, it's, it's gorgeous. What happened uh, several decades ago, the Coal House, the old house, yeah. the Victorian house, Cedar Grove, was falling apart, yeah. and good people in the Catskill area, in the Greene County area, got together and decided to rescue it, and they did. So that, that, that was a major, major effort, and they organized for it to become a national historic site, and the old house has now been beautifully, gorgeously restored. Yeah, it is quite lovely. With yeah. its view of the Catskills yeah. off the front yeah. porch. Now, they've got some very nifty technological displays inside yeah. right now also. But anyway, the other structure that was on the estate, which disappeared about 1970 when it crumbled to the ground, is this gorgeous Italianate studio that Cole himself designed and built in 1845. But he left behind the architectural plans. Cole was also an architect. Uh, yeah, he proposed a plan for the Ohio State House, uh, which wasn't accepted, uh, but he was that serious about being a, an architect. And there was a, yeah, Annette Blaubrin had her show at the Cole House two years ago, three years ago, was about Cole as architect. But anyway, so they had the plans of this beautiful one-room building with a 24-foot ceiling that Cole had designed and built. He built it in 1845, and it's got a 30-foot north window. Uh I mean, a picture window such as was very rare in that period. And then three years later, he's dead, you know. He dies from either pleurisy or the flu or whatever. No antibiotics. And so he's gone early, only three years after he's built this gorgeous building, which was uncared for, you know, just as the old house was falling into similar disrepair. And this one really did sort of just fall apart. But it's been rebuilt meticulously, a replica. And just as you say, that is the Cole Sites exhibition space. Yeah. It's one beautiful room. Yeah, it's with beautiful. The, I saw the Sanford Gifford show yeah. last year, and it was really just lovely. So one so just to allow my colleagues and I, you know, I'm, I'm the guest curator, and I am the author of the book that is yeah. serving as the exhibition catalog. Uh-huh. I wrote this book, and the Cole people very nicely got wind of it, and and then built this exhibition. Built the exhibition around, around your monograph. So yes, exactly. Yeah. So it didn't start out as an exhibition catalog. No, yeah. no, no okay. yeah. it didn't. I mean, we've had all kinds of wonderful cooperation around yeah, it yeah. to create this show. And so at a certain point, there is a lot of active dialogue between the two things. But anyway, I am therefore the guest curator. And one thing I will say about my show, and I'm still, <laughs> I still feel like I'm overreaching when I use that yeah. <laughs> uh, Possessive, but after all, I guess it is sort of my show. And um, one of the things that pleases me so much about the space this time around is that there's these big shutters Uh on this 30-foot window, which in many shows of the past have had to have been closed or partially closed because of prints and drawings that wouldn't be able to stand the damage that the light would cause. Here's a show of 10 oil paintings, so no and, and, and the shutters are yeah, wide open, right. and so these beautiful oil paintings are just flooded with light. So you're giving a talk then? Is it the 19th, a curator's talk? Yes. Uh, On Sunday, May 19th, at 2 p.m., uh, I will give my curator's talk. The talk will not be at the museum. It will be downtown Catskill at a place called the... It's a new installation 
apparently, I haven't seen it, but it's apparently quite exciting. It's called the Lumberyard Cafe or something like that. The Lumberyard something studio. Okay. Go to the Cole site website and you'll find it. Yeah. It's a space that people rent for concerts uh-huh. and weddings. Uh-huh. And I've seen photographs of okay, where... Yeah, I'll post on the Library Cafe website the URL for... Great. And also, I wanted to bring up... Karen Lusick did a wonderful website of Cole's painting, so a catalog resume almost of, of his works a while back, and I think that still exists. So I'll post that also if people can't actually get up to see Cole's paintings. At least they can see them online. That's so. great. Now, Karen, uh, she and her students built their Explore Thomas Cole site. Yes, that's right. See, and, and, uh, Thomas Cole. Yeah. and so you can see how, how helpful Karen would yeah, have been to me. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, she read my manuscript meticulously, and oh, did she? Oh, bless her heart. Yeah, so. but that is true. The so-called Explore Thomas Cole—it's a wonderful yeah. site. Yeah, we'll put the Cole House site there, also the National Historic Site, so that they'll be able to find you. Uh, yeah, where you are down there. So, that's great. Uh, now, that's, everything that's about my talk and where it is, this installation. It's right on the river. Yeah. I've driven around it. I haven't been able to go in yet. Oh. I, when we were hanging the show uh, recently, uh, during the lunch hour, I drove down there just to see where I would be talking. It's right on the river, and apparently they've got a terrace that overlooks the river, oh. and that's where the reception, yeah. Yeah. the post-lecture reception yeah, will be. see there. Catskill Socrates also is a lovely little town. You can walk out along the river itself to right. the lighthouse there. There's a nice little walk. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to it very much. It will be a nice opportunity, first of all, to see some of the folks, you know, who live up there. Uh-huh. Many people helped me, you know, offering me their backyards for GIS measurements oh. and photography. There was a so-called preview party last Saturday where people were invited to come and have refreshments on the lawn and get a peek at an advanced look at the oh. show. It was horrible weather. It was yeah. cold rain. Oh. So everyone went in. But a number of people who helped me in that way were there, and it was very nice to see them. So, no, I, I mean, I, I did real field work yeah. <laughs> in this project and got lots of great help from people on the ground. So uh, I'd like to thank you, Dan, for coming to visit with us today on the Library Cafe to talk about your book, Thomas Cole's Refrain, The Paintings of Catskill Creek, and the exhibition that grew out of the book that is presently on view at the Cole National Historic Site in Catskill, uh, upriver here, through November 3rd of this year. That's a nice long time. It's all summer. It's a nice place to visit on a nice summer day, actually. So anybody out there that can get up there, do drive up to Catskill and have yeah. a look. It's open only on weekends in May, uh-huh. Saturday, Sunday, but I got word this morning that because of popular demand, as they called it, uh-huh. they're opening an hour early. Oh, from that, the rest of oh, May. Okay, it great. was 11 yeah. to 2. Yeah. Now it's 10 to 2. And it'll open again November 21st of this year and close February 28th of 2020 at the Hudson, Hudson River Museum in Yonkers. So, Correct. Yeah, so great. So anyway, thanks for coming. So. Thank you, Tom, very much. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, me too.